Welcome to Sound Philosophy, a podcast exploring philosophical and interpretive approaches to the history of popular music. In this episode, I discuss the phenomenon of the crossover, employing an eccentric reading of Nietzsche to elucidate one element of the success of Motown and the Supremes. Thank you for joining me. Enjoy. charting hit singles on January 4th of 1936. At first they had one chart, a hit parade. Soon they had more charts. They had three by 1943 and by the 1990s they had 32. And now they have so many I'm not even sure how they count them. Uh, The country charts started more or less in 1944. uh, At first only with respect to jukebox play. And R&B has been tracked since at least October of 1942 with the Harlem Hit Parade. This chart became race records from uh, February of 45 through June of 49, and then R&B from 1949 until November of 1963, when for a little while the R&B chart was dropped with the notion that that, uh, charting the pop um, hits was enough, and we're going to come back to that in a moment. Now, as you can see, at first, there are different charts for radio play, for jukebox play, right, or at least the, the tunes that are being bought for jukeboxes, and for record sales, so actual purchasers going to a record store and buying, buying record shops. Starting in March 24th, 1945, there was an honor roll list that combined these various inputs, and by the late 50s, this primary chart was simply called the Top 100 and later the Hot 100, uh, starting around August 4th of 1958. Now, that means that uh, certain claims that, that employ these charts as evidence are rather difficult to parse fully. And you got to remember that we, we make a lot of claims based on these charts. One of the ways that we talk about the history of popular music is through recourse to these charts. And we say, oh, well, such and such song was super important because it ranked uh, at a certain number on the charts. But a lot of this depends on what chart you're discussing, on what year you're discussing those charts, because they're so variable. Uh, and really, a lot of it also depends on what, you're, what kind of claims you're trying to make from these charts. So we have these various charts. Roughly, it breaks down to country, R&B, and pop, where pop, the pop charts are the main charts, and the country and the R&B are somehow subsidiary charts. This, of course, derives uh, from the way that, that people tracked record sales uh, starting in the 1920s. Right, uh, For the first several decades of the history of the recording industry, most record companies would put out simply what a, a chart or a listing of the records that they were trying to sell. But in 1920, uh, with the beginning of the blues craze, which we discussed in an earlier episode, Ralph Peer realized that it might be a good idea to, uh, and, and other people besides Ralph Peer, realized that it might be a good idea to start uh, charting, or, or rather um, uh, promoting uh, record sales of uh, to the black market, featuring 
artists who are black uh, catering to a black audience, right? So that was a separate list. And soon thereafter, he, he began, Ralph Peer began doing the same thing with so-called hillbilly music, which is where we eventually get um, country music. Billboard simply adopts those, those chart names, right, as it develops um, over the course of the late 30s and into the, into the 40s. Now, what happens then is that Billboard is trying to, to chart, as we saw, jukebox sales, uh, radio play, and record sales, but it's not always particularly transparent on how it's doing that. The, the uh, charts are kind of a hard thing to, to fully grasp. A given song will appear in a given spot on the chart in comparison with other charting songs, and Billboard also notes where that song had charted in the previous three weeks at least, right? And sometimes Billboard will even say how many weeks it's been on the chart. So there's a relational view of one song in the context of all other charting songs. So let's say song X charts at number three and uh, in a given week, right? Uh, in comparison to song Y, which is charting at number two, and, and song Z charting at number one, right? There's also a historical view that shows the, the charting trajectory of a given song. So our song X, which if you remember, was at number three in the week that we're concerned with. Perhaps it started three weeks ago at number 15. One week ago it peaked at number two, and now it's dropping to number three. So we get a sense of its trajectory. Notice, therefore, there's both a static and a dynamic element to these charts. Any given week, we're given a snapshot of where everything is. So we could say, for instance, that during this week, Song X simply is the number three song. But from the historical view, we see that it skyrocketed toward the top, got up to number two, but now it's trending downward. Notice that terminology, trending downward. It should remind us of a similar method for charting success, and that method is the charting of stocks on the market, both in relation to other stocks from similar companies within the various industries and in relation to past performance trends, right? So when you watch a show about stocks and they say, oh, this stock is trending upwards or it's trending downwards, that gives you a sense of whether or not you want to invest in it. So Billboard essentially treats songs as stocks with the same kinds of possibilities open to them. They're in competition for your attention and investment, and they have a dynamic tendency to move up or down in value. Of course, this should all make sense. The common listener, at least at first, wasn't reading Billboard. It wasn't intended for them. The magazine is a trade publication, and it was designed for record shop owners, radio station owners, jukebox operators, and so on. So people who are looking to profit from the relatively volatile market of music. A market predicated on ephemeral and ever-shifting tastes, and attempting to gain some kind uh, these Purchasers are attempting to gain some kind of quasi-scientific foothold on that market. Just like you, if you're deciding whether you want to invest in, in Amazon or Google, you're going to try to discern whether or not this is the right time to buy into it and what likelihood of return on that investment you're going to receive. It's the same thing with these record store owners and jukebox operators and so on. If the jukebox operator is trying to get, let's say, a nickel per play, and the song by the Platters, let's say Only You, which was a, a huge hit in 1955, a number one song, uh, 
uh, on the charts. And if you realize that that's the number one song, you're going to want to make sure that's in your jukeboxes because that's going to get you a lot of plays, a lot of nickels, right? So you're looking to invest in these things in their futures. If, if our song, number X, is trending downward and you're on the fence as to whether or not you should remove it, right? You might wait until it slips out of the top 10, obviously, but uh, you may have it in mind that you're going to remove it from your jukeboxes. Now, what makes the Billboard rating so interesting, though, isn't just that they're for professionals who are making these decisions of investment, but also common listeners like you and me begin to pay attention to them. Just like we uh, can talk about with the jazz fanatic in the 1920s and 30s and 40s, that they're concerned with these statistics, who's playing on what records. Now people in pop music in general are beginning to be more and more interested in these kinds of statistics. What was the number one song? How long was it the number one song? Almost immediately after the advent of Billboard and these kinds of charts, you have radio shows like your hit parade and then radio programming like Top 40 programming that relies upon these measures in order to decide what to broadcast, what to, what to put out on the airwaves. So these charts have a very significant effect on the music industry as a whole. And that, that makes us return to this issue of transparency, because not all these products are made alike or have the same opportunities. When we put them on a chart and we say this song is number one, this song is number two, it seems like what we're doing is we're measuring popularity. But that assumes that the only difference between number one and number two is the degree of popularity, and that's simply not the case. The major record companies have more money to put into promotion, have more money to put into making sure the DJs are playing them, sometimes uh, bribing the DJs. This is the whole issue of payola, which we'll talk about in another episode. The idea that some record companies are able to bribe, and that wasn't just the major record companies, uh, on a more limited basis, some of the independents would bribe DJs in order to play their records. So, and as you can imagine, the more play a record gets, the more likely it is to become popular, and then therefore the more likely it is to show up on these top 40 lists and top 100 lists, and therefore the more likely it is to continue to be popular and maybe even increase its popularity. So these products are not alike. The system is gamed, and Billboard participates in that gaming. Billboard claims to generate its lists from record sales and radio play and, and jukebox inclusion, but large companies can advertise and promote aggressively. And so you get this circularity of exclusion, this idea that uh, a song is said to be a top 40 song, and that reinforces its sense of popularity. You'll notice that there's a sort of stabilizing effect that the charts have, right? And that's good for the industry in one sense, because remember that pop music is, by its very nature, ephemeral. Things that are popular now aren't going to be popular for very long. So if you could stabilize that in some fashion, that's to your benefit as an investor, but maybe not to your benefit as someone interested in, in creativity and the arts, right? So the, this use of numbers makes it look like the measure of popularity is, is an abstract figure, but what it really measures is much more complex and much more difficult to pull apart. So ultimately, there's an equation, never spoken but assumed all the same, of, of economic and aesthetic value, right? If I say that in 1955, for a while at least, Only You by The Platters was the number one song in the nation, I'm saying two things. I'm saying it's earning the most money, perhaps at least, or, or seems to be, 
Uh, and that's not a straightforward thing either. And I'm saying that it is the, the song that seems to have the most aesthetic worth. You've had these arguments with people, I'm sure I have, right? Where you say that a song that is not very, or a song that you don't think is very good, but is very popular, you say, yeah, that song's garbage. And someone says, well, you know, 16 million people can't be wrong. Obviously, you are, right? Uh, you're not hearing what all these other people are hearing. But of course, 16 million, million people are wrong all the time about all sorts of things. And when you're talking about aesthetics, where it's not a cut and dry uh, objective set of criteria, of course, what's right for you and wrong for me could be very different things. And just because something's popular doesn't mean it has lasting value. That's another problem, of course, with the billboard charts. Because until the 1990s, the way that they, for instance, amass the year-end charts, which is what shows up in a lot of these books when you're tracing the popularity of music and you look at, for instance, a book on the Supremes and they say, ah, this was the number 10 song of, of uh, 1964 or whatever. Um, what they're doing usually is they're looking at the year-end charts. But until the 1990s, what those year-end charts measured was how long they were those songs were on the charts. So let's say that, that a song by the Supremes or whomever else slipped out of the top 100 but continued to sell well, whereas another song that stayed on the charts for longer than the Supremes, but once it fell off the charts, it no longer sold at all. So that ultimately the Supremes that year sold more than this other uh, mystery uh, person that I've, I've made up here. They would still show up lower on the year-end rankings because it wasn't a matter of total sales. It's a matter of how long they were on those charts. So there's a lot of ways in which these, these numbers are skewed for us. Now, it's also this idea that there are three charts, the country chart, the pop chart, and the R&B chart, that allows for the phenomenon of the crossover, which is our main concern today. You have to have distinct charts for there to be a crossover from one to the other. And the primary concern for most of these record companies was the crossing over from one of the two subordinate charts. And of course, I'm simplifying things, right? And I'm pretending there are only three charts. Uh, but they basically amass into these three categories for a long period of time anyway, right? So the idea ultimately, or the ideal, is for music to cross over from either the R&B or the country chart to the pop chart, because the pop chart was supposed to be the measure of the larger audience, which largely meant the white audience, right? And the white northern audience, by and large. Uh, so in November 16, or on November 16, 1955, let's th think about the chart for the best sellers in stores, right? So this is basically the record sales. So not the jukebox, not the radio play. This is for no November 16, uh, 1955. And I think the, the charts are rather re revealing here, right? The number one is the platters, like I mentioned, only you. And it's in its 16th week on that chart. It's not, it hadn't been at number one the whole time, but it's been on the chart for, for, I said 16, for 18 weeks, right? Um, now it's number one. Also on this chart, you have Jay McShann, The Drifters, two entries from Fats Domino, Ray Charles, uh, Little Willie John, Chuck Berry, Little Richard, Sonny Boy Williamson. So the chart has 16 songs, um, because Chuck Berry and uh, there's only 15 on the list, but Chuck Berry and Ray Charles are tied for 15th. So that puts 16 uh, songs on there. And it's really dominated by black artists. But when you look at the end of the year chart, 
the cumulative chart that tells a very different story. There, the highest ranking black artist was Nat King Cole at number 20 with A Blossom Fell. The Platters ranked a very respectable number 29 with Only You, but that's far lower than one might expect if one's looking at the charts uh, when, it was, when it was charting. The highest rankings, the highest ranking went to Perez Prado with uh, Cherry Pink and Apple Blossom White, and number two was a rock and roll song, but it was Bill Haley and, and his Comets with Rock Around the Clock. Ain't That a Shame was number nine, but not the version by Fats Domino, but rather the cover by Pat Boone. In the following year, the Platters had two hits on the year-end list, including the number four spot with the song My Prayer. But Elvis Presley dominates the charts that year with five entries. Thus, he's 10% of the chart because that year they had 50 entries in the end of the year um, discussion, uh, including the top two spots for Heartbreak Hotel and Don't Be Cruel, respectively. So you can see a few things here. The late 50s are the great period of the crossover uh, phenomenon. Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, and several other artists uh, would cross over from the R&B to the pop to the country charts. There were several cases in which Elvis Presley dominated the number one spot for all three. There were plenty of cases where Fats Domino crossed over from the R&B to the pop and even to the country charts. So you have this blurring of these definitions, and yet... That doesn't make the charts unimportant. Uh, it makes them difficult to read, right? But what it's suggesting is that something that's happening in the 1950s is this blurring of those distinctions, but also a blurring of audiences. And yet at the same time, the industry is working in some ways against that blurring. Because one of the ways, as we can see here with Ain't That a Shame, one of the ways in which the crossovers occur is not simply to have actual black recordings by black artists uh, crossing over from R&B to the pop charts, but to have them covered, have those songs covered by white artists. And Pat Boone was one of the the major figures in this. He covered several songs by by, uh, Fats Domino and by Little Richard, and his versions often charted higher. Why? Well, they were a little safer as far as radio play was concerned, and they were promoted by major companies who made sure that they were played over and over again. At the same time, this crossover phenomenon, to a lesser extent but a still significant extent, encouraged some listeners, some, some young white listeners, to really engage with black music. The um, movie by Alan Freed, Mr. Rock and Roll, which features Chuck Berry, is a good example of this, where part of the point of that movie is that white audiences are seeking out the authentic black artists, the originating artists. By the time we get to the 1960s, though, the crossover phenomenon was of such importance that from the 23rd of November 1963 until the very beginning of 1965, January of 1965, so just over a year long, Billboard ran no R&B chart. They assumed that the pop chart was going to simply cover both uh, pop white artists and and black R&B artists. But this actually led to a decrease in the number of African-American artists on the Hot 100 chart. There were 37 in the year-end chart in 63, but only 21 in the year-end chart in 64. And yet, 1964 is a major year for Motown. They contradict the overall um, trend. Uh, 
They had My Guy by Mary Wells at number seven. The Supremes had two entries. Number 10 was Where Did I Love Go? And number 33, Baby Love. Martha and the Vandellas were at 17 with Dancing in the Streets. Four Tops at 57 with Baby I Need Your Lovin'. And The Temptations at 71 with The Way You Do the Things You Do. When the when Billboard reinstated the R&B chart on January 30th of 1965, it was The Temptations, My Girl, also from Motown, that was number one for six weeks. And by March 6th of that year, it was number one on pop as well. So how did Motown buck the general trend? What is it that Motown's doing in order to achieve such success at crossing over? most widely recognized and most widely misunderstood conceptions is his notion of the Ubermensch, sometimes translated as Superman, perhaps better translated as the Overman. Toward the end of his productive life, even Nietzsche had to admit that this concept was less than crystal clear. The Overman, Nietzsche claims, stands in relation to man, as man stands in relation to the ape. That smacks of evolution, of course, and yet Nietzsche clarifies through the voice of his literary avatar, Zarathustra, in the book, Thus Spake Zarathustra, that it is not nature's teleological drive, and certainly not genetic mutation, that will lead man to the overman. Zarathustra proclaims, man is something to be surpassed. And then he asks his listeners, what have you done to surpass man? The overman is the surpassing of mankind as it is. But this result is not merely inevitable, because in the same passage, Zarathustra conjures the unfortunate image of that most contemptible thing, what he terms the last man. When the people no longer strive to overcome themselves, when they become complacent and self-satisfied, when they disavow creation, then the world becomes small. It lacks the expansiveness that demands exploration. Everything seems to be known, or at least is taken to be understood. There are no more discoveries, no more adventures, no more struggles to invigorate the soul. This will be the existence of the last man. The last man is small and has made the world small. The last man thinks he has attained happiness, but only by equating happiness with contentment and learning to be content with ignorance and stagnancy. 
No one rules, no one obeys, no one suffers, because no one strives after goals. Everyone is considered equal, but this is the equality of the averaged down. We're equal here because we are reduced to the uninteresting, the lax, the odios. The last man waits out time, and as Zaratustra memorably puts it, he blinks. That's his only non-response to the poverty he's created of his life. The last man says no to life and yet continues to live. The last man reconciles himself to a life-negating living death. This gives us a somewhat clearer picture of the overman through invidious comparison. The overman is what the last man cannot be. The overman doesn't want mere happiness, but rather a happiness that justifies existence. His happiness has a meaning beyond contentment. Indeed, contentment in its complacency is exactly what this happiness is not. This happiness is about striving. The overman treats reason not as an archive of knowledge that can be completed so that ideally at least we can know everything, all things can be settled. The overman treats reason as a flashlight. And there are always new, dark corners to explore. The world is the site of adventure, not a mere dwelling place for our comfort. The world registers a coefficient of resistance that ought never to be brought under total control and can never be brought under total control if we see it the right way. Virtue and justice and pity, they need reconsideration. They ought not to lead to satisfaction with the status quo. These values need revaluing in order to push us forward. The overman says yes to life. This is an amor fati, a love of fate, meaning that the life to which we say yes is the life that includes suffering, and the role of suffering here is key. Now, there are various ways we might consider suffering. We might say first that the good life is the avoidance of suffering, or second, that life is good despite suffering, or third, that the good life is only attained through suffering, or fourth and lastly, we might say that life is good because of suffering. Now, Nietzsche clearly doesn't believe the first one, that, that life is best if we avoid suffering. Uh, the whole point of the will to power is that we want to test ourselves against a resisting world. Suffering is indispensable, but in what manner? Now, the second option isn't much better from a Nietzschean point of view. If life is good despite suffering, then suffering is dispensable. It's not necessary. So we're left with the remaining two options. Either we attain the good life through suffering. This is a kind of doctrine of sub sublimation. We suffer, but we make good things out of that suffering. Or... The goodness of life utterly depends on suffering. Suffering is a kind of good. That last one seems hard to justify, and yet that seems to be precisely what Nietzsche is actually saying. He suggests that suffering is not only necessary, but desirable. Let's consider an overly simple example. Why don't you play tic-tac-toe anymore? You like playing games with other people, right? And you know this game, so why don't you play it? The film War Games posited that one doesn't play tic-tac-toe because once people understand the basic moves, no one ever wins. It's always a draw. But let's imagine you're playing with someone who's just really bad at it, for whatever reason. How long will you play after the initial surprise wears off? I'm guessing not long, because winning at tic-tac-toe doesn't offer much in the way of resistance to your efforts. What projects in your life feel more satisfying upon completion, the easy ones or the ones that took real effort? where you weren't guaranteed success, where you could fail. Nietzsche posits that people have a stronger connection to life if they value the projects where success is not guaranteed. If I'm likely to fail and I succeed despite the odds, I feel more alive than if I just 
get what I knew I could get without much resistance, without any effort. That, simply put, is the will to power. I want to feel alive by overcoming resistance. The greater the resistance, the stronger the challenge, the more alive I feel. Of course, there are forms of suffering that are dispiriting, that seem to contribute nothing to life, and that certainly don't call for us to say yes to life. But Nietzsche is after a different suffering, or maybe he's after a different attitude toward it. Suffering here is a challenge to be overcome. So the overman is the challenge of overcoming the self. That's why Zarathustra doesn't celebrate the overman as such, but rather the striving for the overman. The overman as such can never arrive because that would be the end to the striving, and the striving is precisely the point. Zarathustra assures us man is a rope stretched between the animal and the overman, a rope over an abyss. What is great in man is that he is a bridge, not a goal. So we, as people, are the rope, but we are also what crosses over the rope. But even more to the point, we're not a solid object at all. We are a trajectory, or as Zarathustra puts it, we are the dangerous crossing. We are, at our best, the act of crossing over. Inside. 
crossing over that involves an overcoming of resistance, then what was at work in the Motown efforts to cross over? What resistances did they overcome, and how did they do it? Some of this is obvious. As a black company promoting black artists in the 1960s, Motown had to overcome the basic resistance of the music industry to promote their music widely. But remember that large goals with a high possibility of failure are more remarkable for Nietzsche than small goals. The point wasn't just to make it in the music industry for Motown, but as we will see, to remake the mainstream in its own image. This is what's so provocative about their slogan, the sound of young America. The sound, the slogan implies, derives from black culture, but it is a black culture made palatable in various ways to mainstream white audiences. Barry Gordy emphasized the importance for him of mainstream acceptance. In an interview, he claimed, in the music business, there had long been the distinction between black and white music, the assumption being that R&B was black and pop was white. But with rock and roll and the explosion of Elvis, those clear distinctions began to get fuzzy. Elvis was a white artist who sang black music. What was it? R&B? Country? Pop? Rock and roll? Or none of the above? If you picked pop, you were right. And that is, if the record sold a million copies. Pop means popular, and if it ain't, I don't know what it is. I never gave a damn what else it was called. So notice that what he's talking about here is a bit of what we talked about in the first segment. This idea that those distinctions among those three main charts, country, R&B, and pop, were breaking down. Obviously, Billboard felt so as well, right? That's why for the year of 1964, they didn't have an R&B chart. Uh, and, but that worked against them to some extent or worked against the industry because those distinctions, while they're getting fuzzy, are still important if the notion here is for, on the one hand, uh, representation and on the other hand, this possibility of crossing over. So notice that what Gordy is emphasizing here is that the situation had become fuzzy. It had become chaotic and destabilized, and thus it was open to restructuring, and this is what Motown tried to do. As Barney Ailes, the white executive in charge of promotion and marketing, said, Motown was a music company. It wasn't an R&B company, and it wasn't a soul company. So, as you can imagine, Motown has always faced the criticism that they sold out, that in trying to appease white audiences, they were assimilationists, pure and simple, or accommodationists. The same accusations, by the way, are the, these accusations are the same ones that were leveled against Booker T. Washington. 
Now, the first level of resistance that had to be overcome was simply being heard. Barry Gordy and Smokey Robinson quickly realized that a primary site of the reception of their music would be the car radio. The car radio was first designed in 1928 by William Lear, the same guy who designed the Lear Jet. And this was called the Motorola, but it was a clunky thing. It was large, and it got poor reception. By 1953, however, the transistor was invented, and this made decent radio reception much more widespread and much more portable. And so you had the, the portable transistor radios that people carried in their hands, and that also revolutionized the car radio. So by 1963, a mere decade later, after the invention of the transistor, roughly 50 million cars in the U.S. had radios. Around the same time, cars are being increasingly marketed toward young people. So no longer was it expected that people in their late teens and early 20s had to rely on borrowing the family car. So Ford under now the leadership of Lee Iacocca, developed the Mustang, starting really in mass production in 1964. There were early models uh, going back to, I think, 62, maybe even 61, but those were sort of test models. Uh, they were widely marketed starting in 64, and they were specifically geared toward the youth market. And roughly 80% of the purchasers of those years, those early years, who bought a Mustang, got the model that included the car radio. So Motown knew that a huge portion of its listening audience was consuming music through the car radio. Smokey Robinson said that he was conscious of what he called radio time. In other words, short songs got the most play. Right? So he would, if he had a song that had been recorded at three and a half minutes, he tried to cut it down to two and a half minutes. Sometimes, apparently, according to Otis Williams at least, they would even alter the timing on the record. So a record that lasted for three minutes, they would label it as only lasting two and a half minutes. And he says by the time the DJ realized that the song was going over, it was, it was too late. This might be a little bit of legend or lore, I don't know. But one thing that is not legend or lore is the fact that the engineers in the recording studio at Motown mounted car speakers as one of the, the uh, sets of speakers available to test recordings, right? So after hearing it on the big speakers, they would go to the car speakers to hear how it sounded there, to make sure that it sounded good, that it sounded accessible, that it was something that, that sounded good on a more limited um, range of, of technology, the next level of resistance was, was crossing over as such, and here Barney Ailes was key as the marketing executive. On February 12th of 1961, the song Shop Around, uh, by, by of course the Smokey Robinson and the Miracles, uh, became Motown's first million seller. And it was a number one R&B and a number two pop hit in December of 1960. It was heavily promoted by Ailes, so much so that Renoma, uh, Raymona rather, Lyles Gordy, uh, Gordy's second wife, uh, and his business partner at this time, said, quote, we had crossed over and Barney Ailes had been our navigator, right? So this other form of, uh, this other approach to dealing with the resistance was to have a white executive that, that served as a kind of interface with the larger music industry. Now that there was an opening... Barry Gordy felt he needed an appropriate vehicle to carry the sound of Young America to Young America, and he believed that the Supremes were that vehicle. Now, the Supremes started really uh, around 1960 as the Primats. They were Primats. They were um, the uh, female equivalent of the Primes, which is an early version, more or less, of, of the Temptations. 
uh, at this time, they're a uh, small quartet, right, with a with a guitarist, basically, um, that uh, that included Florence Ballard as their leader, Mary Wilson, Diana Ross, and Betty McGlown. Um, they, you know, they tried to get a contract with um, Motown, and Barry Gordy felt, because they were still in school, that they needed to graduate first. There were various legal complications in hiring people that were that young, and making contracts, rather, with people that were that young. So he, he wanted to hold off on it. Um, but by, by the time we get a, a little further into it here, by the time we get into 1961, he relents and he begins to, to record them. And at first, Ballard is still more or less the leader, and they're, they're trying out different voices. There are certain songs that are released that are led by Ballard, some that are led by Diana Ross, some that are led by Mary Wilson, although none of those were released as singles. So you have a song like I Want a Guy in March of 1961, led by Diana Ross, and then Buttered Popcorn in July of 61, led by Florence Ballard. And Ballard really believed she was the, the leader of the group. When they even decided what their new name would be, it was Ballard who, who decided on the Supremes, right? Um, apparently Diana Ross wasn't that fond of that name at first. But then in June of 63, they recorded a tune by Smokey Robinson called A Breathtaking Guy, and this puts them on the pop charts, really, for the first time. For a while, they were known as the No-Hit Supremes, because they were having trouble even making it onto the chart. A Breathtaking Guy gets them there. It's a Smokey Robinson tune, and it goes to only number 75 on the pop charts. And it's a song that features all three singers, so they're still looking for who's even the leader. But Barry Gordy decides that it's got to be Diana Ross. He feels her voice is more marketable for pop charts, in part because it's less distinctly an R&B voice. In October of 63, they released the song When the Love Light Starts Shining Through His Eyes, which is a number 23 pop, so it's breaking into the upper half of the top 100, and it's the first song for them written by Holland, Dozier, and Holland the great songwriting team that really makes their their career for them. So the focus now turns to Ross. They try to follow this up almost immediately with another song called Run, Run, Run that really isn't released until February 7th of 64. Um, and it borrows some of, of Phil Spector's approach, but it wasn't very successful. So they still haven't found their sound. But then in March of 64, Eddie Holland introduces them to the song Where Did Our Love Go? Mary Wilson, in a much later writing, claims that, that she and the group felt that it, was, it had childish, repetitive lyrics, a limited melody, and no drive. They weren't crazy about the song, but they didn't have uh, much of a choice, really. They were still trying to establish a sound. It was released on June 17th of 1964. Listen to this recording. It's peculiar in a number of ways. You'll notice that it has this, this stomping foot uh, thing going on throughout it, almost like a tap routine, right? And in fact, when you listen to the stereo version, you'll hear it move from one speaker to the other, right? Also, as a vibraphone, it features Ross in her lower range, and it has this uh, these upbeat but very sad lyrics. The song is upbeat, but the lyrics are very sad, so you have that contrast. And there's a baritone sax solo by Andrew Mike Terry. Now, part of the key here 
to the promotion was getting them on a tour, the Caravan of Stars tour, with Dick Clark. Gordy said, we need Dick Clark for the white people. Clark didn't want the Supremes at first, but, but Gordy kind of twisted his arm. He only paid them $600 a week, and they had to split that four ways because there were the three singers, and then uh, Diana Ross's mother was acting as chaperone. When they were done with the tour, uh, Mary Wilson says she went to the accounting office at, uh, at, at uh, Motown and was told that there's basically no money left, that Motown lost money on the deal. She thought that that seemed odd since they didn't even stay in hotel rooms most of the time. Uh, they stayed with local friends or friends of friends and so on. Um, and so this is another example of Motown beginning to take more of a business approach and starting to alienate some of the performers. And we'll see that that's what happens with uh, with HDH, with Holland Dozier Holland uh, and, and various other performers and, and songwriters. By August, though, uh, Where Did Our Love Go was the number one song. Right, uh, that that constant babyish refrain of baby, 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 or childish refrain. Right, um, the the stomping feet, the vibraphone, the sax solo, the sad lyrics, but upbeat uh, tempo made it a hit. It became number ten on the year end chart for '64. Remember that chart was that that year was kind of difficult for black artists, but a very successful year for Motown. Um, and and so then they begin to follow up that sound, right? Baby Love is almost a remake in some ways. So instead of having Baby, 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 Where Did Our Love Go, now it's Baby Love, Baby Love, right? But again, this reiteration of the term, uh, the, 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 um, the term baby. So you, it's released on September 17th, 1964. It's built on the same sound. You have the same stomping feet, the vibraphone, the Barry Sachs, and, and like I said, the emphasis on the word baby. And they continue to build on, on that sound, right? Uh, they advance it a bit with, with Come See About Me. But notice what starts happening around that time. Come See About Me, their third number one, and, and this is their sequence of five number ones in a row, right? Starting with uh, Where Did I Love Go, then Baby Love, then Come See About Me. Uh, that was released in October of 64, the same year, that they, or same month, that they released the album A Bit of Liverpool, where they're covering a bunch of the British Invasion tunes. Um, in December of 64, they appear on the Ed Sullivan Show, so further outreach, further crossing over. In February of 65, they released their fourth number one hit in a row, Stop in the Name of Love, and in, at that same time, they release another covers album, basically the Supreme Sing Country, Western, and Pop, and they do their version of Tumbling Tumbleweeds, a, a, a you know cowboy song, basically a singing cowboy song. On April 12th of 65, they release We Remember Sam Cooke. Sam Cooke had just died, and this is a retrospective of his song. So again, these cover songs. In May of 65, they have their fifth number one, Back in My Arms Again. But then, in July of 65, they released the song Nothing But Heartaches from the same album that, that featured uh, back in, in My Arms Again. But this song only goes to number 11 pop. And Gordy releases a very interesting statement within, his, within Motown. He says, We will release nothing less than top 10 product on any artist, and because the Supreme's worldwide acceptance is greater than the other artists, on them we will only release number one records. Now, of course, this is ridiculous. This is impossible. You can't just release number one records. You hope to, but you can't force that. Right, but he's attempting to do so. He's seen the the uh, Supremes as his vehicle to the top of the charts, and so he's putting a demand on his his writers that they only come up with number one hits. And so he begins to really think about ways to make them massively 
mainstream acceptable, right? So he cancels releasing the next single that they were supposed to release, which was Mother Dear, and he's looking for a new sound. Um, and that sound really winds up being I Hear a Symphony, uh, which includes the Baroque pop approach. Uh, that's released in October 6th of 1965. Just before that, of course, they debut with the Copacabana. And at the Copacabana, they're singing a bunch of show tunes along with their Motown songs. And so this becomes the key to their success, this more adult, more uh, showtown-oriented approach. And so when you hear I Hear a Symphony, you'll hear the Baroque pop sounds, right, this orchestral sound. And in fact, they're just riffing in a way on the song by the Toys, Lover's Concerto. And in fact, on the album, I Hear a Symphony, they do a cover of that song. So they're really pitching themselves within that sound. They also release uh, the, an album um, in 67. Uh, that is the Supremes sing Holland Dozier Holland, right? That same year, they also released an album called The Supremes Sing Rogers and Hart. So notice this. They're treating their own music, Holland Dozier and Holland songs, as though it's show tune music, and they're also releasing albums of show tune music. This is, by the way, the same kind of thing that, Aretha, uh, that um, I'm sorry, Ella Fitzgerald was doing, right? The the songbooks albums. Uh, Ella Fitzgerald sings Duke Ellington. Ella Fitzgerald sings Cole Porter. Ella Fitzgerald sings Rogers and Hart. So they're following in that model. They're attempting uh, to to be as mainstream as possible, to seem uh, not like R&B artists, but mainstream artists who cover a variety of genres, Right? Now, at the same time, of course, in 65, this is the Watts riots, and 67 is the Detroit riots. And so Motown, as a black business, as a um, a supporter and a distributor of black music, they begin to, Barry Gordy begins to have pressure put on him to have more of a black consciousness, of a more overt black consciousness. Throughout the first half of the 60s, he celebrated just for being a successful businessman. But by the time we get to 67, things are shifting. For instance, even Marvin Gaye says in an interview, wasn't music supposed to express feelings? No. According to Gordy, music's supposed to sell. That's his trip. And it was mine. Meaning that for a while there, uh, what both Gaye and um, Gordy are interested in is music as a product. That it's, it's means of crossing over, it's means of overcoming resistance, is simply to sell well. But by the time you get to 67, that no longer seems like enough. And so Motown opens its own public service um, area. And, and of course, as we'll see, or as, as you know, uh, Gay and, and um, Stevie Wonder begin to wrest more control over their own music. And uh, Marvin Gaye, of course, releases What's Going On, a very politically oriented album. So the question becomes, why the Supremes? In summing up here, why are they the ones that are the vehicle for crossing over? I think there, there are at least four things that we might focus on. First, they're female. And therefore, their sensuality is more acceptable to white mainstream audiences than black sexuality. Secondly, because Diana Ross is now running the show, they're less overtly R&B and gospel related than they were when Florence Ballard was singing the lead vocal. So this is a muted sensuality, and it hints at sensuality rather than fully stating it. Their early songs, this is the third point, focus on girl talk, motherly advice, and young love. 
the fact that they say baby baby over and over again in so many of the songs the the sort of tap dancing uh, routine redolent perhaps even of say Shirley Temple or something um, makes the music non-confrontational it makes it something that is novelty oriented cutesy to a certain extent and yet uh, Diana Ross is such a consummate singer that there's still something very affecting very moving about that and it leads us to our last point, and I think the most important one. This combination that happens so much in these songs by HDH, by Holland Dozier Holland, written for the Supremes, that really is not a part of the earlier Motown sound, where you're combining these sad lyrics, this notion of suffering and hopeless love, with these, this upbeat music. Alison Stone, in a book I like very much called The Value of Popular Music, says that there's a disconnect. Uh, her example is uh, My World is Empty Without You by the Supremes. Between these lyrics of, of hopeless love and this bouncy, upbeat, danceable rhythm. But I think she's missing, in, in this book that I think is an amazing book and, and is well worth reading, in this one small, you know, she's only talking about this for one page, I think she misses the boat a little bit. The point isn't that the lyrics and the upbeat uh, music are saying two different things. It's that what ultimately is being demonstrated here and what is part of a crossing over is the notion that suffering can be overcome and has to be overcome. That the point of the upbeat uh, sounds is that she's that Diana Ross here is facing up to that suffering and overcoming it, not by distancing oneself through it. This is music of the body. So this is by uh, embodying that suffering, that, that, that the uh, coefficient of resistance is what makes it noble suffering, what makes it something to be overcome, something that allows one to see oneself, as Nietzsche would uh, insist, not simply as someone who overcomes, but as the overcoming itself, not simply as someone who crosses over, but rather that man is, and here woman is, the crossing over in itself. For listening to this episode of Sound Philosophy. I hope you enjoyed what you heard. If you wish to know more about this podcast, please visit www.chadwitchjenkins.com and click on the page for Sound Philosophy. Also, feel free to write me at cjenkinsmusicology, all one word, at gmail.com. That is cjenkinsmusicology at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and hope to hear from you soon.